Well, this Sunday, we're going to come back on to our series, and we're in Philippians, the fourth chapter. This is a verse-by-verse study, and uh, we will start with uh, the fourth chapter, verses one through nine. You know, the Miss America finalist, you know, they await, they await their final question, and that final question is usually designed to reveal their intelligence and ability to articulate ideas, but her true, you know, but her true character and her values. I mean, you're supposed to do all of those things. And the question that was given was, if you had one wish, what would it be? And of course, every time the political correct answer is, I wish for world peace. No matter what the question is, that seems like that's supposed to be the answer. I wish for world peace. Well, I think every one of us would agree that world peace would be a wonderful thing. But the reality is, you know, any peace between nations or neighbors or co-workers or family or friends or peace in the church or within our own hearts and minds, you know, can be both a rare and a difficult thing in many cases. You know, that can be hard to achieve sometimes. You know, just let me show you. Right now, this morning in this, this auditorium, raise your hand if now, even as you sit here in church, um, if you have some pressing issue, some concern or conflict or circumstance in your life, which, you know, which is um, making you feel stress or anxiety, raise your hand. See, there's no peace. <laughs> you look around, there's no peace. You know, here are two facts about true peace here. First of all, it's three-dimensional. You see, true peace has an internal, a horizontal, and a vertical dimension. See, to have true peace, you must have peace within yourself. You must have peace with God, and you must have peace with others. Now, if we have conflict with ourselves, it's hard to be at peace with God and at peace with others. You know, and if we have conflict with God, um, we cannot be at peace with ourselves or others. And if we have conflict with others, the Bible tells us we're not at peace with God, and we shouldn't be at peace with ourselves, if that's be the case. And fact number two is this. God defines peace differently than men defines peace. You know, for men, peace is just kind of the absence of conflict. Men, you know, they can call uh, uh, the pause between wars while everyone is reloading. They can call that peace. But the Bible words for peace, the Hebrew word is shalom, and the Greek equivalent is irani. And I want you to know that both of those words, they speak not only of the absence of something, but of the presence of something. Um, so fact number two, I think we can say this, that God's peace is the presence of righteousness, not just the absence of conflict. That is God's peace. Now, man's peace it's very difficult to achieve, but apart from God, let me say this, that God's peace is impossible apart from him. You know, today we hear a lot about peace plans, but in Philippians, the fourth chapter here, we find God's own eight-step peace plan for our lives. Now, we're going to just jump right in to this message this morning. Number one is this, the foundation for peace is the right perspective of others. The foundation of peace is the right perspective of others. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, my brothers, 
You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, that word therefore there, it refers back up to where Paul first called the Philippians his fellow soldiers, to stand firm in the cause of Christ. And in the third chapter of Philippians, in verse 20, since our citizenship is in heaven, you know, and we're not like those whose destiny is destruction, whose God is their stomach, whose glory is their shame, and whose minds are set on earthly things, like it says in the 19th verse there. Um, we're not like that. We need to pursue God's peace plan. We need to pursue God's peace plan. But true peace always flows from right relationships, which always begins by seeing others the way God would have us to see one another. You know, that is a big thing in the Christian life. We need to look at other people the way God would have us to look at them, you see. Now, Paul doesn't tell the Philippians here um, the perspective that they should have toward one another, but rather for us and for them, he modeled it. In verse 1 here, he set the tone, and he established his right through his relationship to speak truth into their lives and to help his friends find peace in God. He had that authority, and he established that. You know, his his perspective um, towards his brothers and sisters in Christ is an example that we need to follow. And if you look at this here, Paul, he kind of piles up seven descriptors here which reveal his perspective. Folks, peace will always flow if we have this view of one another. This is the key right here. He says, number one, you are my brothers. And then number two, whom I love. Number three, whom I long for. Number four, you are my joy. Hey, you know, Paul had, he had a lot of heavy stuff in his life, but his relationship with these dear friends in Philippi, you know, his thoughts of them, his good times with them, his communication with them always brought him joy. Number five, he calls them my crown. You know, their spiritual life, their growth, their witness and ministry was Paul's peace wreath of victory here. Number six, he calls them my dear friends. You know, a common father makes us brothers and sisters, but we choose our friends, you see. And then finally, number seven, verse three says this, Paul calls them his forever follower or fellow workers in the Lord, his forever fellow workers in the Lord. You know, he speaks of loyal yoke fellows, you know, who had contended, you know, by his side. The word picture here is, is that of oxen that are yoked together to serve a master. Now, Paul had issues with these women, but warts and all, he still saw them as his loyal partners whose names were written with his own name in the book of life. Even though he had problems with them and these women were problems, he saw them as loyal partners here. So let me ask you this. Um, how do we see our fellow church members? How do we look at them? 
You know, when you look around this room today, do you see beloved and longed for brethren, your joy and your crown and dear friends who will be your fellow workers serving the Lord forever? Do you see them that way? That's the way that we should, you see. Now, for three chapters, the first three chapters here of Philippians, Paul, he's kind of been tippy-toeing around the, the elephant in the room here. You know, he's just been tippy-toeing around this. Well, finally, he deals with it directly here. He says in the second verse, I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what the issue was. We don't know if it was one of doctrine. We don't know if it was strategy or one of just personality. But we do know this. We do know that both of these women, they loved Jesus and were influential in the church. We do know that. Both were good friends of Paul who had proven themselves in spiritual battle by his side. They were good workers in the church. And Paul exhorts them to agree with each other. But the problem is they didn't agree with each other. No doubt, both women felt strongly about what they believed here. So Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Now, the New International or, or the New American Standard interprets it this way. It says, live in harmony in the Lord. You know, these women, they were playing different notes on different instruments here, but if they would just both focus on the Lord's purposes, you know, Paul believed that they, they could find a way to harmonize here. Now, Paul was no stranger to conflict. He had conflicts in his life. Paul knew all about conflicts with his friends. You know, he once confronted the apostle Peter himself. And then another time, you know, he, he suffered sharp disagreement, you know, and a sad parting from his mentor Barnabas, you remember, over whether or not to give young John, John Mark, who had miserably failed, uh, a second chance in the ministry. See, however, years later, um, you know, he did acknowledge that Barnabas had, in the long view, been right about the character of the young man, even though we don't know that he admitted it any other time. But the bottom line is this. You have, um, is to have an agreement, to have a harmony needed for peace. We must share this, number two, the right purpose in the Lord. The right purpose in the Lord. Folks, we may never agree on the best route to get something done. We may not agree on that. But if we're both committed to getting to the same end result here, there is opportunity for mature and gracious and creative, for creative people to, to create um, the harmony essential for peace. You know, we can work together. But even then, we will all sometimes need this. Number three, the right people to help in conflict. The right people to help in conflict. Verse three says this. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended um, at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, folks, there are times in life when we all need the help of wise, righteous, 
um, mediators. We all do. Sometimes we are so passionate about something that from our own perspective is so clear that we cannot see any other alternatives. And I know you've been there. I've been there. You know, we can't see another person's point of view or any path of compromise that would still achieve our goal of honoring God and being his faithful steward. Sometimes we just can't see that. So sometimes we need others who love and respect and know both parties here to help us find the harmony. And of course, if, you know, if we are mature Christians, like Paul's yoke fellows here in Philippi, we will no doubt sometime be called to play the role of peacemaker in the lives of others. That also happens. Now, the key to having these right people in place um, long before the conflict arises. That's the key. Have these people in place long before the conflict arises. You know, the key is to build your, your relationships and your reputation within a community in which there are many wise men and women whom you would trust to counsel and advise and mediate and, if need be, arbitrate. You know, when you have an irresolvable difference here, you know, with the brother or sister in Christ. So it's good to surround ourselves with people just like that. Now, you'll also remember that in the Corinthian letter, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for dragging each other into secular courts here. You know, he said in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter here, starting verse 2, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You know, if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Um, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Folks, if we want peace in our lives in the future, we need to get people in place in the present. We need to surround ourselves with those kind of people. Well, number four is to adopt a right paradigm for all of life. To adopt a right paradigm for all of life. So again, and again in verse four, Paul writes this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, the, the message translation, um, they translate this verse, celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him. That's the way they translate it. So you see, to really have God's peace in your life, you must have a paradigm of joy. You need to be a thankful person. You need to be one, you know, one who every day sees and celebrates all the good in life. You know, God has called you to be a Tigger, not an Eeyore. You know, if you remember those stories. At the beginning of the 20th century, during the Boer War, a man in Ladysmith, South Africa, he was charged for an interesting crime. Um, as the town was under attack, this man 
He was walking around telling everyone, we cannot win. We're going to die. We must surrender today. So he was arrested and he was tried and he was convicted and he was thrown in jail for the crime of being a discourager. Can you imagine? Well, folks, you think that's kind of odd, kind of funny. Well, God did a similar thing. You see, in Numbers, the 16th chapter, when he opened the ground and swallowed the grumblers, you know, at the rebellion of Korah, he did that. You know, and when he sent us all of Israel for 40 um, more years in the wilderness because spies told Moses, you know, there are giants in the land and we can't do this thing that God has already said is going to be done. So understand this, negative people undermine spiritual growth. They always have. Negative people work against what God is trying to do in us and among us and through us here. Negative people sow the discord that prevents us from living in one accord. So we need to promote God's peace by having the right paradigm of all life. That is, we need to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Step number five to peace is to develop the right patience. Develop the right patience. Now, patience, just like peace, is a fruit of the Spirit. So whenever the Holy Spirit reigns, there will always be both patience and peace. But in verse 5, Paul says this, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, the NIV translates gentleness as epiakes, and it has a richer meaning than any single English word can convey. So consequently, our different Bible versions, they widely vary on how they interpret this word, how they render this word. You know, in different places, that word is translated sweet reasonableness or goodwill or friendliness or charity or mercy or lenient or big-hearted or moderation and forbearance. But probably the best translation might be gracious patience. Gracious patience. This is a patience Basically, that allows us to love, to maintain relationship, and assume positive intentions and trust others, even when we endure injustice and disgrace and mistreatment at their hands. You know, there's a way to do that. This is the quality that helps us to reject bitterness this is the quality that also allowed Jesus to say from the cross in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And see, we are to allow this quality to just well up in our lives and be evident to all because the Lord is near. He is near. You know, this is the example that Jesus set for us. And if this is the example that Jesus set for us, this is the example that we need to follow. Now, he's watching us, and he stands ready to help us every day to become more and more just like him. It was Charles Spurgeon. It was his good friend, Newton Hall. Newton Hall, he wrote a best-selling book entitled, Come to Jesus. Jesus. 
And later, another preacher published an article in a London paper that criticized Newton Hall for his work. And he was, you know, and it was ugly. It was a personal attack that, you know, that uh, garnered the, the preacher's attention, you know, the preacher's attention and for a long time, a bigger audience there. But it deeply offended Newton Hall, and Hall wrote this scathing um, reply, full of retaliatory language. But in a moment of wisdom, he decided to have his friend, Charles Spurgeon, um, read the letter before he dropped it in the mail to the editor of the paper. Well, after reading this letter, um, Spurgeon said, Newton, my friend, this letter is well written. And this man deserves everything you said about him. But one thing is missing. He said, right here, underneath your signature, you need to add Newton Hall, author of Come to Jesus. <laughs> well, Newton Hall, he just tore his letter to shreds there. You see, folks, how can we say to the world, come to Jesus, when we speak to one another as sometimes we do? How can we do that? You know, gentle patience is a prerequisite for peace. And step number six to God's peace is learning to pray right. Learning to pray right. Now, I would say the enemy of our inner peace is worry. And most of you would say the same thing. So Paul admonishes all of us as sons and daughters and, you know, of God and brothers and sisters in Christ, as citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting the appearance of our Savior, you know, he admonishes us all and, and who loves us deeply and has all the power. He says in, in, in the fourth chapter in verse six and seven, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Folks, the cure to worry is the right prayer. Paul says, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition. That is to say this, we can ask God for very specific things if we present our requests with thanksgiving. You know, sometimes I think we might be like the woman who once told G. Campbell Morgan, she said this, she said, Pastor, I pray about big stuff, but bother God with the little stuff. And Morgan replied, he said, Madam, everything you talk to God about is little. You know, isn't that true with all of us? You know, all of our stuff is little to him. Folks, listen to me on this. There is nothing that we could possibly bring to God that is too big for his power or too small for his concern. Because you see, we are the ones that he loves so much that he sent his son to die on Calvary's tree for us. How special is that? Folks, you can take anything to God in prayer. He loves you, you see. So why in the world do we allow anxiety to ever even enter our hearts and minds? Why do we do it? 
Well, the devil's on our case most of the time, and he's a big part of that, sure. You know, we give ourselves migraines. We give ourselves ulcers and high blood pressure. We work ourselves into an early grave. We make ourselves sick and just miserable with worry. And we're short with the people that we love. And we say, why does God let this happen to me? And folks, I really believe that God is up in heaven saying, why are they let that happen to them? You know, why don't they just pray to me? You know, can you see it that way? Of course, choosing not to worry and choosing to pray is an act of faith. There's no doubt about that. It's an act of faith that recognizes God, God's sovereignty in our world here. Um, and let me tell you something. Just praying will help you worry less. Even when you don't know how to pray or what to pray for, just the fact that you're communicating with God will help you worry less. Notice God makes a promise with this as well. You know, he has promised that if we would choose not to worry, but we would pray with thankful hearts, he's promised to come to us. And in a supernatural way, a way that we cannot understand, men cannot understand here, he will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. Now, folks, that's a pretty amazing promise, I would think. What about you? You see, how many of you at some point in your life have truly experienced this promise? Raise your hand. Have you truly experienced that? Look around. See what a wild testimony this is. You look around. A strong testimony here, you see. Folks, the next time you're tempted to worry, get on your knees with thanksgiving. Number seven, to know God's peace, we must learn to ponder right. Now, verse eight says this. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lo lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, the Greek word here for think is logazomai, which we get our word logic from. It means to dwell upon. It means to study or analyze or to evaluate. You know, this is not to be just a passing thought, but this is where our minds should be living right here. You know, first word to ponder what is true. Now, in our world today, truth has pretty much become, it's been replaced by emotion and, and, and just pragmatism here. You know, a lot of people today, they never ask the question, is it true? You know, today people ask, well, how does it make me feel? Or... You know, will that work for me? Those are the questions they ask. You know, we're very different than those noble Bereans back in the 17th chapter of Acts who searched the scripture daily to see if what Paul said was true. We're different than them in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of people today, they, they don't go to church to think on the divinely revealed truth in scripture. A lot of people today, they just go to church to get their spiritual high or their weekly feeling that God is still with them. But God's call is for us to dwell on the truth, you see. 
John 17, verse 17, Jesus said to his father, your word is truth. And in Psalms 119, verse 151, David said, all your commandments are true. And Jesus said in John 15th chapter, in verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. You know, it is this pondering right here of truth which informs our praying with thanksgiving that brings God's peace. But the truth is just the beginning of our pondering. We're also to ponder whatever is noble or honorable, worthy of respect. When something or someone, you know, epitomizes uh, honor, we ought to think about them and the example that they set. Next, we're to think about whatever is right. Now, Dikios, the word for righteous or just, you know, it describes anything that is consistent with God's nature and God's law. We're to think about whatever is pure or holy is fit for heaven. And then whatever is lovely and admirable, you know, anything in life that's attractive and pleasing and admirable before God, fill your thoughts with that. The scriptures are telling us that. And in the eighth verses, it's anything that's excellent in praise or worthy of praise, think about such things. Folks, Christians should appreciate the beauty of this earth, great music, great art, great cuisine, you know, and it's right for us to respect and to admire efficient teams and profitable businesses. You know, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, think about such things, the scripture tells us. And in Psalms 23, in verse 7, it declares, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. And then in Proverbs 4, in verse 23, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So, you see, we need to guard what we think about. And if we, you know, if we think about true, noble, excellent things, then truth and nobility and excellence will be manifest in our lives. You know, garbage in, garbage out. What we put in, that's what comes out, you see. And those things always facilitate peace. Well, and last, certainly not least here, you know, it's never enough just to ponder right. You know, to have peace, we must also practice right. Verse 9 says this, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Folks, the bottom line is this. The promise of God's peace is to those who live the word, who take everything that they have learned by precept and by example and put it into practice. You know, they are the, as Matthew 7 says, they are the, the wise men who built their houses on the rock by doing what is um, the word says here. And I guess John, the 14th chapter and verse 21 sums it all up like this. Jesus summed it up like this. He said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. See, if the Lord comes into your life, and he loves, and he shows himself to you, you will have peace. Amen? Amen. Amen.
Father, thank you so much for giving us your peace plan. Thank you for showing us how to get along with one another. Thank you for reminding us of who we are and who you are. And Father, we just give you praise for that. And may we be found guilty of being at peace with one another. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.